I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. So, Fitz, living in the West, I grew up with forest fires. There's something that always happened in the summer, but the scale is changing a lot, and it's making me realize that a lot is changing really fast, and I think I probably share an emotion with most of us that live in these western states that are burning right now. Um, it's scary. It feels like our world and our future might be really different than what it was even just a couple years ago. I, I would say that certainly on a personal level, yeah, fire fires become way more of my life in the last three or four years. Like, and and it, I, I think it, at least in Washington. It really has too. I think it was something that was like, oh, occasionally we have smoke blowing in from, you know, Canada or the BC fires or some fire on the east side of the mountains. But it is, it's just been, you know, there's some period every year where we're experiencing it in Seattle. And that was not the case beforehand. Yeah, no, that's the same for me. I think about fire a lot more than I used to. And it's made me realize that there's a lot that I don't know about it as someone who spends a lot of time in the mountains and I'm sure you're the same fits. Like, I feel like I have a decent awareness of the other elements at play, like weather systems and river crossings, snowpack, rock stability, things like that. But fire is kind of this enigmatic and scary element that generally just freaks me out. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think it's the same thing. You know, like if you look at it and like how much I understand about snowpacks and how much I understand about, you know, just mountain weather in general, fire is like, it's a mystery. Exactly. So I've been interested in finding a story for the diaries about people who interact with the element of fire in the mountains all the time. Wildland firefighters. Because I have so many questions. Like, how does firefighting work? Is it always scary and hot and miserable? Or is there an element of adventure to it? What draws someone back to firefighting year after year? And how is firefighting changing as the scale of fires in the West takes on a whole new dimension? Well, so my brother has a friend who firefights in Wyoming, and I got in touch with him. And he connected me with one of his colleagues, who's a smoke jumper. Someone who jumps out of planes to fight wildland fires. That's some next level stuff. Yeah. Talking to Patrick had me on the edge of my seat for three hours. I'm Fitz Cahal. I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. We did not have a TV in our in our family. 
I didn't have internet until after I graduated high school. And I remember many nights like sitting out in front of the community library in my truck trying to like submit college applications on the free public Wi-Fi. This is Patrick McGonigal. He's a smoke jumper with the Bureau of Land Management based out of Boise. He grew up near Whitefish, Montana, about 35 miles from Glacier National Park. Public lands have always kind of been in my blood. I remember several large fires when I was like eight years old, and it just had this element of mystery to it. These forests that we'd gone and camped in were now completely different. Patrick went on to study civil engineering at Montana State University. In the winter, he could leave his desk and be on a chairlift in 26 minutes. Not that he was counting. Once he graduated, Pat wasn't sure where to look for work that would integrate his interests in public lands and adventure. There it was, a glossy-eyed, freshly graduated civil engineer from Montana State University. I'm going out to change the world, and I think the best way to do that is by taking a job as an environmental engineer at a coal mine of all places in Wyoming. And my boss was just coming in from six years of firefighting, and uh, he's telling me, Pat, you're 22, don't do this, don't take the full-time job, like, go live your 20s and go to Burning Man, go travel Europe, and then go join Wildland Fire. After a year at the coal mine in Wyoming, Patrick decided to take his boss's advice. He signed on to a fire engine with the Forest Service in Montana in the summer of 2015. And what I thought was just going to be a quick summer job to pay the bills and fund my off-season travel adventures quickly lured me in. That summer it turned out to be a big fire season in Montana. Pat got a lot of experience really fast. He learned how to set prescribed burns, repair gear, fell trees, put out flames, all with a close-knit group of other firefighters. And it's awesome because they're 18, 19, 20, 21, probably just spending a, you know their summer of college making a bunch of money. Some of them are classic into the wild type characters are coming out to a place because you apply on a federal job board where you could literally click any duty station in the west so some people don't even google earth and they just end up in absolutely random places there's something beautiful about just showing up to a, a ranger station that was built in the 30s like with a conservation corps crew and you have all the old history of that ranger station, all the old signs. There's crosscut saws from the 30s there. There's maybe a mule train. And as a distinct smell, and I think people can recognize that smell of an old, musty government building that's been well-loved and used. When the season ended, Pat already knew he'd be back the next summer. After his second season on an engine outside of Bozeman, Patrick was accepted onto a hotshot crew in Montana. That's a higher tier of firefighters recruited to respond to big, tenacious forest fires scorching the West. Those enormous fires are often human-caused and can take weeks or even months to contain. Hotshotting is the glory days. It is by far just the best most miserable type two fun. So you're going to a fire that is so big that you see the smoke column like hours before you get there. I think the term started in the 60s 
for these crews that were known for going to the deepest, hottest, and like scariest parts of the fire. So, oh, those are the hotshots. Hotshots work on a 20-person crew. When they first get a fire call, they load up in two pickup trucks and two buggies, vehicles that sort of look like a UPS truck. I mean, buggy life is, I think, a critical part of everybody's fire career because, you know, everybody's smell. You know what they eat. You know everything about them, their girlfriend, their extended family, like absolutely everything. You have like the worst jokes. You have the best cribbage tournaments. You have like really crazy, weird contests about who can eat like gallons of, I don't know, salsa or something that like you get on a fire and people just squirrel away. You are an extremely well-oiled machine that has worked out and knows everybody's strengths and weaknesses, and you are working harder than you've ever worked in your life, accomplishing seemingly impossible objectives of clearing forest, clearing just impossible quantities of fuel over multiple, multiple days. And then maybe at the end of it, if you're lucky, you burn it off and help contain a giant fire. The firefighting scene is fairly male-dominated. Some crews have more women than others, but usually there are three to four females on a 20-person hotshot crew. But those women, they represent. So a swamper is somebody who, when you are the person with the chainsaw, your swamper is the person that's like throwing everything you cut away. (laughs) And by far my favorite swamper is, oh, this gal named Megan. She's like maybe 100 pounds and like, I was thinking, like, her, she's lifting, like, close to her total weight. And, like, by far, like, my favorite swamper I've ever had. And I was like, what if, what would I be doing? I am lazy. I am, like, barely doing, like, half my body weight. And, and then getting tired and being like, oh, my gosh, we should, like, slow down and drink some water. You build kind of a trust and, you know, spirit of camaraderie that... I I think our society might lack in many places. And there's a reason that fire folk end up talking about this job, even in the depths of winter at a bar or brewery or something, uh, because it does become, you know, part of your identity after a while. I asked Pat, because I didn't know, how do you fight a fire? Like, what exactly is involved in that process? There's the fire triangle, which is fuel, heat, and oxygen, and you remove one of those sides and it's gone. So it's it's really not rocket science. We very, very rarely use water. Um, I think that's probably the first misconception is that we're carrying water around. Water is like so ridiculously heavy and pretty much useless because it just like, it's gone. But so we we have flappers, which is, I guess, a little less, <laughs> a little less like uh, radical of a term than you might think. For an extremely handy tool, it's pretty much a a mud flap from a vehicle attached to a broomstick. So we, we take the, these flappers and just kind of swat and or drag them along the edge of what's burning. And it, it goes out because you're depriving it of oxygen. They also fight fire with fire. With diesel and gasoline torches, the hotshots start a new fire near the edge of the forest fire. That new fire burns up all the fuel between the crew and the wildfire, which contains the blaze within a boundary. That's pretty easy when you're just doing tundra grasses that are like a third of an inch tall. But in timber, it's quite a bit different. So that's when you're starting to cut what we call ski runs, where you're cutting 
everything down for you know a 50 foot wide 100 foot wide swath along a ridge line and that you will eventually burn off of that as well and you're you know cutting a thousand trees to save a million type of rationalization in your mind which is tough because i love trees <laughs> and i mean some it's been some of my worst shifts in fire were cutting like large ponderosa or large larch down a tree that you know might be older than far older than my family history or older than the u.s The hotshot crews work 16-hour shifts, 14 days in a row. A few days of R&R back at the station, and then they're back on another fire. Yeah, the hotshot crew, like, you will have your glory assignments where you're on a ski resort somewhere, and, like, the ski runs work perfectly as fire breaks. So you're, like, pretty much burning off the ski runs to, like, help corral and contain this large fire. And then you have just the absolute sufferfests. (laughs) and where it's like nine days of just brutal anything like horse flies poison oak just really dusty really brutal conditions spiders things that are just like ridiculously annoying after five days that might be not annoying after five minutes uh so you get to test your mental bounds and man yeah my saw partners will for one year and Leo on the other, man, I, I think you get to know a human better than I think just about you ever could. You can kind of feel like a, like a lost boys tribe, you know, like you're just in this caravan of folks driving around the West all summer, having these adventures. And, uh, I think for a mid twenties person that's just looking for adventure and a phenomenal camaraderie, like I I think the hotshot crew is by far I don't know if there could be a better job. Each season, Patrick worked on a hotshot crew He told himself, next year I'll get a real job. But every fall when fire season ended, he just couldn't bring himself to apply to work in an office. So he spent his winters substitute teaching in high schools, traveling and skiing. He loved learning about fire so much that he decided to go back to school for a master's degree in land resources and environmental sciences to study how wildfires affect water quality over time. He continued hotshotting during the summers when he was in school. After a few years, Patrick started to ponder if he could take the next step up in the chain of command. Eventually, at some point, (laughs) with all those mundane tasks, I started to wonder, hey, who makes these decisions about, like, hey, let's put this hotshot crew here. (laughs) And I think for that 10,000-foot view, eventually I was like, I have to go be that next person. And the easiest way to be that next person is to smoke jump and get a lot of credibility and authenticity really quickly. smoke jumping. If you're not sure what that means, it's okay. I didn't either. But I'm going to run you through a quick history because it's pretty nuts. So there have always been fires in the American West, and it's always been hard for firefighters to hike to them when they're burning on difficult mountain terrain. As aerial technology advanced in the 1930s, 
The U.S. experimented with sending planes over fires and dropping water or foam on them, but that didn't have great results. Then World War II breaks out. The Japanese begin sending paper balloons on airstreams across the Pacific Ocean to the American mainland. Tied to those paper balloons are bombs, crafted with the specific purpose to start fires in American forests. Didn't learn that in history class? Neither did I. Turns out the government banned media outlets from publishing stories about these paper balloons so that the Japanese couldn't track their success. How crazy is that? So the goal was to create havoc and distract the U.S. from their war efforts abroad. So forest fires become a threat to national security. And that's when the Forest Service tests out a risky model that the Russians actually had pioneered, parachuting employees to fires from airplanes. The first jump happened on the Nez Perce National Forest in 1940. As the Forest Service calibrated their system, smoke jumpers became more and more successful in extinguishing fires, much faster than they could have from the ground. Today, the U.S. has about 470 smoke jumpers in the West, and those are split between seven Forest Service bases and two Bureau of Land Management bases. And smoke jumpers are different from hotshots in that they're sent as first responders to new fires, small fires, right after a lightning strike, which is the most common cause of fire in the West. And their track record is pretty dang good. They put out 97 to 99 percent of wildland fires before the American public is even aware of them. And each jump base has kind of its own culture and history. The Bureau of Land Management has Fairbanks, Alaska, and Boise, Idaho. Meanwhile, the Forest Service has bases out of Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, and Montana. Applying to be a jumper at one of these bases, it's a whole process. You need like four to six years on a hotshot crew to even dream about smoke jumping. I applied for three years before I got in. And I've heard people applying for 10 years, you know, you need... It's tough because your hotshot crew doesn't want, you know, what in effect might be their best person to leave. So you have to secure a positive reference from your, your superintendent. Once you've got that reference, you decide which base will be your top choice based on where in the states you'd like to work. And it is the most brutal like chess game ever because the bases will call you and be like, hey, are we your number one? Like, I thought you said like Wes Yellowstone was your number one. Are we your number two? Like, because... It costs about 30 grand to train a single rookie. And historically, one-third of the rookies wash out of the training, so they don't want to lose any of that money. If a base is interested in you, then you've got to interview. Each base has its own different culture, so you have to know a lot about each base. So some bases, it might be best to show up like <laughs> with like a home-cooked meal or something. Other bases, it's like, hey, let's go for a run, and then you just try to like crush the person you're interviewing with on a trail run or something. My top bases I wanted to be at were Grangeville, Idaho, and West Yellowstone, Montana. I'd interacted with jumpers from both of those during my time on engines or with the hotshot crew, and I also selfishly applied to Missoula, because I lived in Whitefish, which was just two hours away, and Missoula has fantastic craft beer. (laughs) But uh, I think in terms of the country I wanted to respond to, Grangeville has a Frank Church wilderness. Oh my gosh. Like, just go on Google Earth. You can spend an hour zooming around on that. And then West Yellowstone has, you know, the Bighorns, the Tetons. They have the Wind Rivers. When Patrick showed up for his interview in West Yellowstone, 
he ended up talking about his famous homemade lasagna for an hour with the base manager. That was the ticket? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a small base that they, they have family dinners pretty much every night. There's barbecue going nonstop, and it's a very tight-knit community. I remember I got a call at 8.03 in the morning on a day that the government was shut down, which is crazy. This was 2017, and it's Boise. And they're like, hey, I got your name on our list. Like, you got a good reference. Like, are you interested in applying here? And I'm like, oh, man, I didn't even think about you guys. And I was like, yes, I am interested. And they're like, well, we may or may not be calling you later to offer you a job. And here I am like, what degree of may or may not does this entail? Because I got a call like seven minutes later from West Yellowstone being like, I hear the Bureau of Land Management is offering jobs right now. Um, We may or may not be able to officially say that we would officially like to offer you a job. And I was like, well, I may officially say that I would officially take a job if you could officially offer me it. (laughs) It's it's so much rigmarole in politics because... If two bases think you're their number one, one of them's going to offer to you and you're not going to take it. And then they might get their number seven instead of their number one. So it's this like this crazy draft. It was a very hectic morning. I was extremely caffeinated. I, I did say yes to West Yellowstone. And I think I just immediately went to the gym and just thrashed my like my body. In April 2019, Pat headed to Missoula for rookie training, along with 18 other aspiring smoke jumpers assigned to the Missoula, Grangeville, and West Yellowstone bases. They will find your limits if you have any, and or you will have have them, and they will find them. (laughs) Distance running was my, I I wasn't terribly worried about that, but yeah, pull-ups and push-ups, I was not as strong as other folks who were also poor at distance running, so you end up balancing each other out. Rookie training lasts five to six weeks. The first week and a half, Pat referred to as Hell Week, just an absurd amount of running, push-ups, pull-ups, pack carries, sprints. And throughout it all, the rookies face the constant stress of being cut from the program. If they couldn't do enough push-ups in time or complete a three-mile, 110-pound pack test in an hour, they'd have to pack their bags and head home. It's pretty sad when, you know, some of your newfound buddies start dropping out of the program. After the first week and a half of physical training, the rookies got split into units to learn parachute manipulation and flight tactics. It's just a bunch of checklists and like flight characteristics and you're getting so much information so quickly, which you need because that's how you're going to have to adapt and make decisions that have life consequences in real time and... Lucky enough, if you can uh, compartmentalize your failures, because you will fail. And then, like, I was terrible at tree climbing. So, like, sometimes you get stuck in trees and your cargo, because we get supported with cargo. Sometimes your cargo gets stuck in trees and you have to go get it. And so they'll throw these, you know, spurs that clamp onto the bottom of your boots and then a dinky little rope that just goes around the tree and you're supposed to climb up this giant tree and get this cargo out with just a little handsaw. I am not that good at that. (laughs) And uh, some people are fantastic at it. 
you can't be beyond any job and it's a critical part of the job because that cargo might be a med kit and your buddy might have a, you know, have gotten injured either through work or on the jump and you got to go get it. So, but I thought I was done. I was in a tree. All the rest of my rookie class was at the bottom of the tree doing push-ups, And I was like trying to get down the tree because to stop them from doing push-ups. But Pat's other strengths balanced out his tree climbing. And after six weeks of arduous physical training and practice jumps from the airplane, he learned he'd made the cut. And you're 100% not a smoke jumper yet. Like, you have just finished rookie training. So you do not get to wear a shirt, you do not get to wear a, a ball cap, nothing, until you jump your first fire. After the break, Pat suits up to jump out of an airplane on his first fire assignment. Stay with us. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. In 2019, as Pat finished rookie training, the tundra caught fire in the Seward Peninsula of western Alaska. After just a few days at the West Yellowstone base after training, Pat and a few of his rookie classmates got sent to the Fairbanks base to jump the tundra fire. When they arrived, the siren sounded for Patrick, his team, and jumpers from other bases to load onto airplanes with members of the Fairbanks crew. So as part of our contract, we have to be completely suited up in two minutes from the siren. And then the airplane has to be taxiing in six. Nice job. So we practice our suit-ups fairly often. In rookie training, it's a critical task. Get all your gear on in two minutes. And our, our jump gear is really heavy. My exit weight out of the aircraft is 310 pounds, and I weigh 190. Two. And helmet. Closing. PG bag. 
The majority of that weight comes from the parachute. Their personal gear bag gets strapped between their legs, stuffed with a hard hat, work gloves, water, a first aid kit, a GPS radio, and a fire shelter. They wear leather logging boots, a helmet with mesh covering their faces so they don't get stabbed by tree branches on the way down, and a Kevlar fire-resistant suit with hockey pads sewn into the knees, shoulders, and torso. And the Kevlar suit has pockets. So you have, like, this big pocket that kind of goes behind your butt. I have, like, my tent, a tarp in there, a super big, heavy-duty plastic bag because it always rains on every fire ever. Uh, I have, like, a puffy, a couple extra pairs of socks, maybe an extra pair of underwear or two in there, um, another T-shirt, and then in a leg pocket, I got a pair of Chacos. I got a, a letdown rope, which is if you get stuck in a tree, you have a 150-foot rope in your pocket to... We have an O-ring system sewn into our, in our jump gear so we can kind of create a pulley and let ourselves down, get to the ground, get most of our weight off, and then climb the tree later to get the parachute out. I asked Pat what they did for food. We usually keep a steak in the freezer at the base, and then you throw a steak in aluminum foil in your leg pocket because it's really nice to get to a fire and you put a, a steak or, or a can of Spam or something in a stump hole and just kind of let it slow cook for a couple hours while you're working real hard and then you come back to dinner and it's fantastic so all my rbs um so your rookie bros are your rbs so all my rbs and i are just up there in alaska with these really old school jumpers and we don't know anything <laughs> like, we just like barely know how to fall out of an airplane and like we're on this plane load with a bunch of old salty dudes and we're like, okay, the winds are doing this. We think we're gonna fly our canopies this way and we're gonna go here and land here. And they're like, shut up. And just like, just follow me. And we're like, what? Like, who are these guys? And like, we're doing all these like super by the book buddy checks. From the plane, the smoke jumpers communicated constantly with dispatch to locate the tundra fire. Once they found the fire, the jumpers watched the smoke to see which way the wind was blowing and threw a 20-foot strip of crepe paper out of the airplane at 1,500 feet to get a sense of how far their parachutes would drift. Then they radioed back to dispatch and said, we're going into jump operations. And then everybody's at the windows looking down, looking for anything. Are, we, are there power lines? Are there barbed wire fences? Because those are probably the two biggies. Are there cliffs? How far off the ground is the aircraft flying? Uh, we'll do a low pass at like 100, 150 feet. A barbed wire fence is invisible, you know, over over about 200 feet, you can't see it. But then we'll fly back up to 1,500 feet, and the spotter, who's an experienced jumper at the back of the aircraft who will not jump, he's has a headset on, he's tethered into the aircraft, and he's talking to the pilot, kind of setting up the jump plan. Each aircraft holds 8 to 10 jumpers, and everyone jumps in pairs. Once the spotter decided on a jump spot, the pilot flew the plane back up to 3,000 feet, and the first pair leapt out of the aircraft and into the sky. Once that lead jumper hit the ground and radioed back the thumbs up, Patrick and his partner launched out of the plane. There's a moment of clarity that comes when you like push off from an aircraft, waiting to pull your handle to deploy your main canopy. Like Sometimes you get clouds between yourself and your jump partner, 
and you'll just see your buddy like, oh my God, Ray is falling so fast right now, like through that cloud. <laughs> and then he opens his parachute and you're like, oh, what's up, Ray? Like, how's it going, dude? <laughs> I think just that, uh, that instantaneous perspective is a critical component that I, I never quite got, even while, you know, just chainsawing just as hard as I possibly could on the Hotshot crew. So we jumped and I'd never been in the tundra before. It's surreal. So we land and you're just immediately covered by mosquitoes. And I landed on a caribou shed, this antler. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck is this thing? It was like sticking to my like left hamstring. The plane leaves and then it's quiet. And that's the best part because it's just you you know, seven bros and the fire. And then you get to work as hard as you can all night long to get that thing out. You have the adrenaline dump after jumping in and then it's just you and this battle, <laughs> which is, uh, I struggle to think of many other times where you have something that's so almost contrived of just like, this is a very clear objective and all your force is all that you have to put this out. And I think that if you read it right and read yourself right, can really enforce like your capacity to do good within this job. After the jump, the task became firefighting, just the same way Patrick had learned on the engines and hotshot crews the years before. Except that the terrain felt much different than the forests of Montana. The tundra is just like, it's like walking around on a bunch of bowling balls that are under a mattress. And you're, you're just like, falling all over the place. The water's, there's water everywhere. You're just soaked. And then it's burning, which is just surreal because the top foot of it is dry. And so it's just burning. When Pat's jump crew got to the fire, flames had already engulfed about 200,000 acres of tundra. With a fire that big and that remote, there's no way a single fire crew can fully contain it. But Pat's team had been tasked with saving some native fish camps in the area. So we pretty much just fanned out and saved this little rectangle from burning, directed the fire around it, waited for it to leave, and then we left. After three days of fighting the tundra fire, a helicopter came to fly Patrick and his team back to Fairbanks. Patrick has now been a smoke jumper for three years. He transferred from West Yellowstone to the Boise base in January this year, and now he works as a jumper for the BLM. Patrick has been on about 30 smoke jumping assignments in New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and California. Over the course of its career in fire, Pat has gotten to travel to parts of the country he never would have visited before, to sleep under the stars, and to help protect towns and forests across the Mountain West. Near the end of our interview, I asked Patrick a question I thought was obvious. Does the fire itself ever scare you? Like, um, I feel like you haven't even talked about the fire <laughs> this entire time. Uh, I love it. It's not like this evil disaster thing. Like wildfires 
the only natural disaster that we try to control. And I don't know. I kind of feel like it's like, hmm. It's a very tough question to answer, Cordelia. <laughs> I don't think the fire particularly scares me. I have run from fire several times. It's as you gain more experience, you start to understand the predictability of it. But then just when you think you know anything about it, it just completely shatters your perceptions of it and does something that you would not expect. Fire will give you all your misconceptions in brutal honesty. It'll rebuke all your intentions as quickly as you can like recalibrate and, and do something new. And then finally, when you're at like your most humble, like, well, I guess I'll try this, <laughs> then it'll like be like, okay, see, now you like thought it through built up the plan from very succinct components and then, you know, shared that plan with the others and now you are all successfully and safely accomplishing a mission. And to have some wide-eyed kid under my wing, you know, like who's on their first fire, uh, it's always a good feeling when they're like, are you sure we should be here? And I'm like, maybe, like, we might have to like skedaddle really quickly. I don't know. I just work here. <laughs> um, that's always fun. Fires across the West have become more severe in recent years. Last summer and this summer have set all-time records in many Western states for acres burned, diminished air quality, entire towns burned to the ground. Some of you might be watching the sunset like a drop of blood in the sky as you listen to this. I know that in Colorado, seeing blue sky is rare these days. A few weeks ago, I called Pat between jumps. He was healing an infected foot in a hotel in Provo, Utah, when I caught him on the phone. His voice sounded a little less peppy than in May when we had our first interview. He'd just been in California, battling the megafires and seeing the destruction and heartbreak that they've caused. These huge disasters where you're just on kind of the war zone spectrum, like that's not the type of firefighting I like. Currently, fire crews are so short that the government had to activate the National Guard to help fight fires across the West. How we interact with our lands and live among them. I think everybody's kind of having these big uh, light bulb moments. And unfortunately, that light bulb is 400,000 acre wildfires that burned down a couple towns. And uh, it's, it's going to be a process. And yeah, I think the greatest tragedy would be if these fires happen and we don't change anything. And those changes, they are happening, albeit slowly. The Biden administration has already taken and will continue to take action to bolster the wildland firefighting program in the U.S. And that includes raising firefighter pay, creating year-round positions rather than hiring seasonal workers, training military personnel to support firefighters, and re-examining forest management practices. For Patrick, seeing the increasing complexity of fire firsthand makes him interested in learning more about the bigger systems at play, both ecologically and socially. I would absolutely love to be a district ranger someday. I think that's my long-term trajectory, uh, going back to the Forest Service, because you get to see the many stakeholders that are invested in a piece of land. Originally, it got into fire as just a means to an end. I just wanted to make a bunch of money so I could go travel to Vietnam and Cambodia all winter. 
Instead, Patrick found a career, a lifestyle, and a community that has opened his eyes to a new way of understanding the relationship humans have with the natural world. I think if we can solve this objective of building better fire resiliency in the landscape and expanding consciously as we develop lands, um, I think then we can take that sort of leadership into other elements of our humans' growth into a, a naturally contained planet with you know all the other myriad aspects that we deal with, like climate change and everything else. But yeah, I guess it's been hard looking personally at fire without drawing the greater parallels to the bigger picture. And again, always wanting that 10,000 foot view. That's why I didn't want to be on the ground anymore. So I had to get in the aircraft to, to jump into the fire so I could see it from beginning to end. This episode is dedicated to Tim Hart, who died on a fire jump in New Mexico this summer. Patrick will always remember Tim as someone who inspired him to follow his passions, keep learning, and stay ambitious. Thank you to Patrick for sharing your story. And a huge thanks to all the firefighters out there on the front lines right now. We're so grateful for all of you. Our stories come from friends, and from friends of friends, and from you, our community. So if you've got a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today by Bradley Carter, John Barry, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordy Lee Gazars with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Call, graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.